like to be, uh, talk to Pastor Jim or me, and we will be doing that. And then Karen and I are going to do something brand new this year. We're going to step out of um, our roles in Awana uh, because we're going to be hosting out of our home uh, for about nine weeks this fall and hopefully about nine weeks in the spring also a program called LifeWorks, which is designed uh, for people who um, maybe don't know a lot about church or maybe who have been to church uh, sometimes but uh, aren't necessarily familiar with everything related to the Bible and Christianity and maybe have lots of questions. And, and this uh, LifeWorks program is designed for people who have a lot of questions to be able to ask them and to uh, explore together with the group some answers uh, based on the scriptures. And so if you are one of those people or if you have a friend who is one of those people, uh, we would love to have you participate with us, and it'll be exciting and lots of fun. And I can't wait to see what all happens by the power of the Spirit of God through all of you and through us this fall, because it's going to be exciting. These are exciting days in the life of our church, and I'm pumped up about it. But today, we're sticking with Abraham's story, and we're going to be picking up in Genesis 20. And as you find your way there, let me just tell you that one of the periods of history. I love history. I, I like the History Channel on TV. I like to read history. I just picked up a history book now that uh, Borders Bookstore is history. Uh, I decided to go and shop there. Uh, uh, going out of business sale, they had Stephen Ambrose Citizen Soldiers there for $4.99. They still got some copies if you're interested. Uh, it's about the, the D-Day invasion and, on the, and the the, the battle from, from D-Day all the way to the surrender of Germany. Uh, since I didn't live through that, I don't maybe know that history as well as some of you. But it's, it's, a, it's a way of looking at history, and it's exciting. I, I was a history major in college, but one of my favorite uh, periods of history is that period between the fall of Rome and the Renaissance. That's uh, what a lot of people call, quote, the Dark Ages. But it's the period of ladies' fair and castles and knights, and chivalry, and tournaments, and Robin Hood, and Prince John Lackland, and Richard the Lionhearted, and all that, right? It's great stuff. Fantastic. Uh, and, 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 it's, and if you're a lady, you know, there's lots of romance to this, and it's, it's great. It's just marvelous, this period in history. Now, I'm not sure I'd want to have actually lived through it, but nonetheless, uh, you know, because I'd have been an old man in those days. The average lifespan of a European man was somewhere around 50. So at 38, I'd been, you know, getting up over the hill and coming down the backside. Uh, but this is a kind of a neat period. And one of the things that uh, was really kind of neat, I think, about that period in history is the knights who wore that really cool-looking armor. A few years ago, I went to the Chicago Art Institute, and they had an exhibition of arms and armor down this whole hallway. You could go and look at it and see all this stuff, and it's impressive. And armor was great because what it enabled a man on horseback to do was to defeat a much larger force because he was impervious to most arrows and swords and battle axes and this kind of thing. It would, his armor protected him. But the downside of it is that there were gaps in your armor. There had to be in order for you to be able to move. And these gaps were called chinks in the Middle English. 
And so if you uh, wanted to defeat a knight, what you did was aim your weapon for these gaps, for the chinks in someone's armor. And that expression of having chinks in your armor has come over into modern English, of course, to mean the areas in your character where you are weak and where you are vulnerable. And from a spiritual perspective, I think we all have these little chinks in our armor, gaps where we're weak and vulnerable. And, and maybe yours are different than mine, or maybe you share some of the same ones, but I think all of us have areas of our life where we repeatedly struggle with some of the same sins over and over and over because we're vulnerable at that spot or this one or that one. And as we consider Abraham this morning, what we're going to see is that one of the chinks in his armor is lying. Abraham has a relatively distant relationship with truth. He has, he has real trouble telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. He really has difficulty with it, especially when it comes down to a question of his own safety, protection, and comfort. And so this morning, we're going to see again uh, an example of this in Abraham's life and hopefully learn from his bad example. You know, I had a coach one time who told me, uh, son, you are not completely useless. You can serve as a bad example to everybody else. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and Abraham at points is just a fantastic example of a man of faith. And at other points, he is the worst example that you can come up with of some particular character traits and flaws. And this is one of them. So Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now there are two big things I want you to see in those two verses. Number one, this is the same lie that Abraham has told before he told it remember back in chapter 12 when they went to egypt only that was out of the land of israel this is within the land that became israel later on this is in the promised land he's now lying before it was out of the promised land that he's lying and we'll find out later that it's partially true but the reality of it is is that in god's eyes anytime we tell the partial truth we are completely lying now, by the way, that's a test-taking tip for those of you who are students. You take a true and false test, and part of the question is false. All of the answer is false. All right? The same, same standard applies with God. If you tell a half-truth, it's a whole lie. And he lied not for noble reasons. You know, sometimes in the Scripture, even, there, in, in the book of Exodus, there's, there's this noble lie that's told by the Hebrew midwives who are trying to protect the lives of the Hebrew baby boys who are about to be born from, from Pharaoh throwing them into the Nile. Uh, you know, if the Nazis come to your house and knock on your door and you have Jews in the attic and they say, do you have any Jews? You're perfectly within your rights from a biblical perspective to say, what Jews? Jews? No, we don't have any Jews here. Okay, move along. Uh, and to do that, 
Okay. Sometimes, for noble reasons, God commends you for doing the right thing, even if you can't do it in a completely right way. But this is not a noble lie. This isn't a Corey Ten Boom type lie. This isn't a Hebrew midwives lie. This is a Abraham looking out for Abraham lie. He, he's not, it's not a, I'm willing to, uh, to bend the truth to protect someone else. It's, I'm willing to sacrifice my wife on the altar of my own safety. A godly man, by contrast, takes the shot for the sake of his loved one. He doesn't offer up someone else for his own benefit. So, gentlemen, just word of encouragement here. If your wife hears a noise and you hear it too at night, do not hand her the bat and say, go check that out, honey. <laughs> okay. Your job as the man is to take the hit for your family. And Abram, rather than do that, says, honey, we're going to sacrifice you so to protect me. This is not good. The other major thing I want to you to see here is that by his cowardice and by his lying, that Abraham puts at risk God's promises. Remember that over to this, over and over to this point, God has been promising Abraham, you're going to have a son, you're going to have many nations, you're going to be the person through whom God's blessing is going to come. In fact, the Messiah, the promised one, is going to come through you. And he's clarified twice that it's going to be through Sarah that this child is going to come. And in fact, at the last time that God clarified it for Abraham, he showed up at his tent in the flesh, in person. So you would think that Abraham would have got it through his uh, meaty skull that somehow that he's going to need Sarah for the baby that is to come and for the uh, promises of God to all come about. He needs to have a wife, and he needs to be not just random wife, but this wife. And yet when he is confronted with a situation where he might be a little bit in danger, he's willing to put not only his wife at risk, but God's promises at risk also. How is he going to have the child of promise with Sarah if she is married to someone else? That at least complicates things. Can we agree on that? Let's move on here. Let's read and see what God does. Because God has to rescue Abraham again, pull his bacon out of the fire. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. 
So once again, just like in Egypt, God has to directly intervene in order for his plans and promises to come about in spite of Abraham's sinfulness. Abraham has given up his wife for the sake of his own safety, told a lie again that God had specifically chastised him for telling in the past. Now he's telling it again. And Abimelech has been about to commit adultery with the woman that he has married, but he has been prevented by God in some way from doing so. But nonetheless, it's vitally important that the child that is going to result from Sarah come from Abraham and not from some random fellow. By the way, Abimelech is the name of, of a number of people in the Old Testament, and it's probably actually not a name. It's probably a title. Uh, the word Abimelech means, my father is king. And so it's probably not a name. It's probably a title like Pharaoh. And this is probably the name of the local crown prince. Like we call, uh, what's the... Uh, Charles, that's his name. Um, that fellow over in England, right? He is the he's the what? He's the Prince of Wales, and then his son is Duke of Cambridge or whatever. Well, Abimelech is more or less the ancient equivalent of one of these titles. My father is king. So this random fellow, who's the petty king of of Gerar, which is this little area uh, near Gaza, and God is going to fulfill his purposes, and he's going to fulfill them through Abraham and Sarah. And so God comes to this apparently pagan king, Abimelech, and says to him, you'd better not touch that woman. She's somebody else's wife. And if you, and you're, in fact, about to die for what you have been about to do. What? Hold on, wait, 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 back up, God. I, I, she said that she was his sister, and he said she's my sister. And I, I, I'm innocent. I, don't, <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do anything out of any bad motives whatsoever. And God says, I know you didn't. That's why I've been preventing you from coming anywhere near her. Uh, but if you try to consummate the marriage, son, you and everyone in your house is going to die. That's a pretty good warning. Thanks for that. Uh, and something else that's worth noticing here in this text is, is Abimelech's question to God. He says this, will you destroy an innocent nation? And that question is asked just after chapter that we just read last week about how God did destroy the wicked nation, city-state of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and it's two chapters after Abraham and God have been having this negotiation, remember, about whether or not God would destroy the righteous along with the wicked, in chapter 18. And so here again, we see God's justice. God did destroy people who were deliberately engaging in egregious sin. That was last week. And adultery is just as bad as what was going on in Sodom. And God says, if you commit adultery with this woman, I will destroy you just as I destroyed the people in Sodom. 
but I won't destroy you if you're innocent, which is the guy's point. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. I was not intending to do this. Um, and so God did not judge Abimelech and his nation. He did not know what he was doing. He was not deliberately sinning. He was accidentally sinning because Abraham, the prophet of God, was a liar. Now, I know that sounds incongruous to say it that way, but that's the reality of it. And so Abimelech tries to make every effort, and we're going to see him do this in the next section here, when he confronts Abraham to make sure that he is declared innocent of any kind of wrongdoing. Uh, let's read on here. Verse 8, early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid, as they should be. When God shows up and tells you, uh, if you consummate your marriage, you will be killed, and along with everybody in your family, uh, this is what's known as a stern warning. And they're afraid, justifiably so. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls so they could have children again. So the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, if you read this, one of the things you need to know about Old Testament culture, which is still true, by the way, of Eastern culture just generally, is that it is a faith-based or guilt um, uh, or shame-based, rather, culture uh, versus ours is a guilt culture. A guilt culture means that you feel bad when you do wrong, even if you don't get caught. A shame culture is uh, you feel bad if you do wrong and you get caught. And <laughs> this is a shame culture. And if you get do wrong and get caught and are called out on it publicly, then you are shamed in public, and you lose face. And it's a terrible thing to lose face. Now, Abraham has been caught. How did he get caught? Because God directly told the person he lied to that he was a liar. Bad news. And so one of the things about sin that becomes known in a public way is that it has to be purified in a public way. And Abraham has brought sin onto Abimelech and judgment from God. And, and he, in doing that, he has brought shame onto Abimelech and his house. And so Abimelech then is going to offer gifts to Abraham uh, so that everyone can see that he's innocent of any kind of sin. 
himself. And so, but in doing that, he's going to call out Abraham in public. And I don't know if you can just imagine how embarrassing that would be to have to admit what you've done when everybody, I mean, try, try to imagine, you know, they're going to televise something that you've done wrong on C-SPAN. <laughs> and that's kind of the idea of how this feels. Because he, when you're called before the king of the place where you live, uh, this is about as public as it gets. And he calls Abraham on the carpet and says, look here, why did you do this? What, what was even the reason that you thought to do this? This is, this is awful. Why did you bring shame onto me and my house? Why did you, you know, why did you lie to us? Why did you bring, bring the, you know, why did you set me up for an opportunity to sin against God? Why would you do that? And Abraham's answer is really ironic when he says it. Look at what he says. He says, I said to myself, there is surely no fear in this place, fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, let me just make an observation that when you really yourself personally fear God, that lying is not one of the behaviors you engage in. Is that a fair statement? I think so. And so he's saying, well, I decided to lie and demonstrate my lack of fear of God so because there's no fear of God here. It would be like me saying, you really shouldn't yell at people. <laughs> uh, note the irony in that, right? Uh, that's just not, he's just not following uh, his own convictions. Somehow he says, well, I am a, I'm someone who fears God, but apparently not enough to tell the truth. And then he slips in that note of self-justification. Well, in fact, she really is my sister. She's my half-sister. And if you look at it in a certain way and hold it to a certain light, well, then, you know, I'm exonerated. Well, no, you're still a liar. And we need to see also, and I, before, we, before we move on, I just want to show you this also, that this is a repeated pattern. Look at... Look at verse um, look at verse 13. He says, "When God had me wander from my father's household, I said, "Now when was that? That was Haran, long time ago. I said to her, "This is how you can show your love to me everywhere we go, saith me, He is my brother." In other words, they've been telling this lie every place they went. And the two instances in Egypt and here are the two instances in which they got caught doing this. But they've been telling this lie ever since they left Haran. Over and over and over and over. You think this is a problem in Abraham's life? Yes, it's a problem. He is uncomfortable with the truth. Now, uh, that brings us here to the end. When we just a few minutes ago, I talked about how how armor naturally has weak points and areas of vulnerability, and and today I want us to see that one of the major major weak points, one of the big chinks in Abraham's relationship in Abraham's relationship with God, 
is that he is uncomfortable telling the truth when it comes to protecting his own safety. And in fact, one of the reasons that all of us lie is that we think when we lie, we're going to avoid trouble, right? And so you come to a kid, and he's got cookie crumbs all over his face. There's chocolate up his arm. Morning's been doing this. You know, and you ask, have you been in the cookie jar? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? And you know, and he knows, but why does he lie? Because he thinks if he lies, he avoids trouble. If, you know, you escape from some issue, you know, or... I thought you were going to be home at 11.30. Well, you know, I had this and happen and this happen and this happen. And you start making your excuses, right? And maybe you elaborate a, a little on some of that. Because why? Well, you don't want to be in trouble. And you forget about the Lord and the fact that he knows everything. And you want to fear him and honor him regardless of whether you get found out or not. Abraham and Sarah are very literally the two most important people on the earth during their day. It's through them the Messiah is going to come. Through them the nation that God is going to use to write the scriptures is going to come. It's through them that all of the prophets are going to come. It's through them that the apostles come. It's through them that the church is established. These are the two most important people on the face of the earth. And yet they don't trust God. Don't you think that given all of the vast promises that God has made, given all that God is going to do through them and accomplish because of them and all that he's going to bring about, don't you think that God would be giving their safety and protection his full attention? And yet somehow they don't trust God enough. And so everywhere they go, they lie to avoid trouble and to protect themselves. They don't really believe that God is going to look after them and deliver them and provide for them and uh, protect them over and over and over and over they lie. And from this, I think there are a couple things that I think if we really look at ourselves, we see that we're not that different from Abraham and Sarah. And I just want to ask a couple of questions here as we wrap up and go to communion. First one is this. What are the chinks in my armor? I don't mean just me. Ask yourself that question. What are the chinks in my armor? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. What are the chinks in your armor? What are the weak points? What are the areas of vulnerability? What are the sins that you keep on committing over and over and over and over? 
maybe because it's comfortable, maybe because it feels better, maybe because you're addicted in some form or fashion to that particular behavior, maybe it's because it, it feels protective to do it that way instead of God's way, maybe because it's easier, maybe because you're afraid of losing a relationship with some other person if you actually are following the Lord in all aspects of your life. Whatever the reason, what are the chinks in your armor? Pray as David prays, search me and know me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Where are the chinks? Where are the weak spots? Where are the places that you need to do what Paul says, put on the full armor of God that you may stand firm? Where are the areas that are weak and vulnerable and need cleansing and repentance and protection from the Lord? I really believe what the Bible says is true, that we all are fallen, that we all have areas that we struggle, and that some of us, over time, we develop patterns of struggling in particular ways. And... So I also believe this, you know, James 5.16, James writes these words. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I believe that we're supposed to do that. That we're supposed to have relationships with one another in the body of Christ close enough that we can say, hey, this is an area that God's Holy Spirit and through the Word of God has revealed to me as a weak point. It's a chink in my armor, and I need help. Will you pray with me? Will you help me be healed? Will you ask me how this is going in my life? Because I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm an addict. I'm a rageaholic. I'm a greedy person. I'm a whatever. These are where the chinks lie. And have the other person say, yeah, you know what, I will pray for you about that, and I will talk to you about that, and I will go to the Lord on your behalf for that. And by the way, here's, here's mine. Let me show you my areas of vulnerability also and the struggles with sin that I have. And let's, be, let's seek to be healed together. Last question, do I really believe in God's promises? Do I really believe in God's promises? See, Abraham and Sarah did not really believe that all that God had promised them was going to come true. If they had really believed, they would have acted differently. If they had really believed that God had promised Abraham a son through Sarah, there's no way that when they went on one of their little trips to wherever, that he would have said, yeah, I don't know what happens to that girl. She's my sister. I mean, you know, whatever. And let her get married to all and sundry. That wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. Why? Because that lady and I are not just husband and wife, but she is going to be the, the mother of a mighty nation that God has promised me. And I'm going to be her husband and the father of that mighty nation through her. And she would have said, what are you thinking, clown? 
I'm not going to introduce you as my brother everywhere we go. That's not going to happen. I'm going to introduce, introduce you as my husband because that's the relevant relationship here. And since God has already promised us all this stuff, it's going to happen. And we can't be dead and have it occur. So God is going to watch over us and protect us. And we need to trust God here. But here's the reality. We have great promises too. Jesus promised us as an example this. He says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He said that we would have a fantastic future to look forward to, that he would send the Spirit to indwell us, which he has, that he would teach us by the word through the apostles and the prophets, which he has and does if we are willing to read it and listen to what it has to say and obey it. We have uh, the promise of one another, of being part of a church community and learning together how to serve and love and follow the Lord Jesus. We have all kinds of promises. But many times we don't believe that, that that is how the abundant life comes because we choose to live differently. Well, church isn't really that important. Well, it's not really important that I confess my sins. It's not really that important that I understand and know and follow the scriptures. It's not really important that I talk to the Lord, even though they've said the Bible says pray without ceasing. It's not really important that I do these things because, you know, I mean, yeah, God's made some promises, but I know how to do it. I know how to live my life on my own. Do I really believe God's promise? Because if I really do, if I really embrace it, really lay hold of it, then my life will drastically change as I follow God's leading and as I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So we need to remember God's promises and have and shape our life in light of them. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and precious promises. We thank you that you have promised us homes in heaven in your presence. We thank you that you have promised us spiritual gifts. We thank you you have promised us abundant life. We thank you you have promised us victory over sin and death and hell. We thank you that you have promised us relationships with one another in the church through which to learn to love each other and to love you. We thank you that you have given us your word, which teaches us everything we need to know for life and for godliness. We thank you that you have promised to be a God of prayer who listens to us and hears and acts on our behalf. Father, if I were to stand and recite all your promises to us, it would, we would be here the rest of the week as we read your word. Father, your promises are manifold and eternal. Father, I pray that we would live in light of them, that we would be free.
from sin.